Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. Lauren Cordain is considered by most to be the father of the paleo movement. He's professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Colorado University. Professor Cordain, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm glad to be here. I'm one of the guys that's been in the middle of this from day one and from the very beginning. But my mentor is a fellow by the name of Boyd Eaton. And Boyd is a radiologist in Atlanta. He works also as a part-time faculty member at Emory University in their anthropology department. But Boyd is really the guy that got this whole thing going in 1985 with a paper that he published in New England Journal of Medicine called Paleolithic Nutrition. And I was fortunate enough to have read that paper in 1987, two years after it was published. And I thought it was just about the best idea I had ever heard. And so that's what kind of got me interested in this. So what is it, what exactly does it mean to eat paleo? Well, I think that's a, a really good question because... Paleo has become so huge now and so worldwide and international that uh, lots and lots of people have their idea. So the original idea that Boyd Eaton had in 1985 was paleolithic nutrition. Paleo means old, lithic means stone age, so the old stone age. Let's try to emulate the the nutritional characteristics of our our stone age ancestors. So when was the paleolithic? It was from the time people first started making stone tools until the agricultural revolution about 10,000 years ago. Um, uh, during that time period, all humans that lived on the planet were hunter-gatherers, and they foraged, hunted, gathered, and fished their foods, and they ate the foods that were pretty much in their unadulterated, non-processed state, and they pretty much ate them fresh. So that's kind of the guiding light was, let's try to do that. But the problem is is that we don't we no longer live in the Stone Age. We're no longer hunter-gatherers. We live in the 21st century, and the foods that we eat are constrained generally by the foods that are produced by agriculture that we can buy in the supermarket. So the real meaning of the paleo diet, and I've always tried to, to, you know, emphasize this, is not to eat precisely the foods that our hunter-gatherers' ancestors ate, because that would be completely impossible and impractical. Um, We can't eat wild game because we can't hunt it. It's illegal to sell game meat across state borders in the U.S. You have to hunt it, and if you hunt it, then you can only um, consume it yourself or with friends and families. You can't sell it commercially. So uh, the only wild game that we get is game that we can hunt. There are uh, operations that produce game meat, uh, but they're not, generally they're not wild meats. They're game meat that are produced in a, a ranch land setting. But that's not, there's nothing wrong with that because they're, they're real close to what uh, wild animals are. So you don't have to eat wild animals on this diet. 
And you don't have to go out and forage for wild plant foods. And most of these foods are culturally abhorrent to us. Most people would not want to eat brains and guts and testicles and all the rest of the, of the carcass that our ancestors ate. So what we're trying to do with modern, quote-unquote, contemporary paleo diets is to emulate the food groups that they ate and eliminate modern food groups. And so hunter-gatherers did not eat cereal grains for the most part. They rarely or never ate uh, dairy products except after, except before they were weaned from their, their mother. And they clearly didn't eat any processed foods, processed sugars, vegetable oils, grains, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, uh, those foods, refined grains, refined sugars, refined vegetable oils, and dairy products comprise about 70% of the calories in a typical Western diet. So the reason that people like yourself and, and people worldwide do so well health-wise is because they're eliminating 70% of their calories or close to it, depending on how compliant you are with the diet. So if you're eating a typical Western diet and you knock out refined sugar, refined grains, refined vegetable oils and dairy, what are you left with? You're left with fresh fruits, fresh veggies, uh, meat and seafood. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's pretty much what the diet's all about. And uh, you know, there's varying degrees of, as I mentioned, compliance with it. Some people think that dairy's okay. Some people throw salt in it. And, you know, there are even people on the internet, and I don't fault them. They they can make recipes with nut and almond flour and throw in a little bit of honey and salt and uh, you know, dried fruit and bingo. You can make a brownie bar look exactly like a brownie bar from Pillsbury in terms of its nutritional and physiologic effects on our body. So. Mm-hmm. There's a wide spectrum of how to do this, and uh, you know I, I certainly don't claim to be the expert, but I I would say that the further that we drift from wild plant and animal foods with our modern foods, um, the further we drift from the potential health benefits of these diets. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned there that there's recipes on the internet that include lots of nuts and dried fruits and stuff like that. Is that something you would recommend staying away from? Well, not necessarily. No, I, I, there's nothing wrong with nuts. If you eat them in, you know, I, I think in amounts that are that don't become a major portion of your diet. But nuts are very calorically dense. They're high in fat, nine kilocalories per gram. Mm-hmm. And if you combine a high fat food with a high sugar food, like dried uh, fruit, dates, raisins, figs, and so forth, you've essentially produced a candy bar. Yeah. And um, well, quote unquote, it is paleo on paper. Hey, look, we're eating dried fruits. Our ancestors ate dried fruit and were eating nuts, they would have eaten them too. But they could, clearly couldn't have eaten those foods year-round. Nuts are only available seasonally. Mm-hmm. Trees that produce nuts produce their seeds seasonally, and you can collect them and gather them. Same thing with fruits. Fruits produce their uh, seeds, reproductive material seasonally. But you can't eat them every single day of the year. And if you want to do paleo using, and it's not so much nuts, it's the nut flour. So what people do is you can go out and you can get almonds that are ground up into flour and other nuts that are ground up into flour. So they have the consistency of flour. They have a surface area that is enormous compared to a regular nut. Mm -hmm. You take a nut and you grind it up into tiny little particles and you now have this enormous surface area. And then if you put sugar in with it, it, it's this this huge glycemic shock to our system and that's the problem. So you're better off eating fresh fruit and nuts Mm -hmm. uh, rather than getting 
these recipes. I mean, and you can go online, you can get yourself blueberry muffins that are made out of nut powder and, and you know, it's amazing how creative people have become to try to replicate the junk that we eat now. <laughs> but, but physiologically, these foods don't interact with our bodies at a much better rate than do junk food. They have greater nutrient density. They're not quite as high a glycemic load and they have, you know, better potassium to sodium ratios, but we're still escaping the reality of like, look, if you want something sweet, eat a piece of fresh fruit. Uh-huh. And if you want something fatty, go out and get yourself a good piece of fatty meat. Mm-hmm. That's a lot healthier and a lot closer to what our ancestors ate. So what is it about this way of eating that's optimal for athletes and people trying to get the most from their body? Well, athletes is kind of an artificial character of people. I mean, we're all athletes to a degree. We're all involved in being physically fit. Some operate at higher levels than others and some have different genetic traits. But the bottom line is, is that when you eat in this manner, you optimize your genetic potential. You become what you genetically can become. And for most of us, if we've lived in the Western world eating crap and processed foods our whole life, we haven't achieved our genetic potential. So um, that's the real beauty of it is that everybody can become healthier and a little bit fitter mm-hmm. and a little bit happier because uh, our brain is like any other organ in our body is it responds to proper and optimal nutrition. And uh, when the brain is adequately nourished, we feel better. Mm-hmm. And when we feel better, we have lots of behavioral characteristics that make us better people. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the story that you told in Paleo for Athletes about Joe Friel and how you guys came to meet and what kind of improvements he saw by going on this type of diet? Well, Joe and I are old friends. We go back 30 years. I first got here to Colorado State University in 1981. I was a rookie professor straight out of graduate school. And in 1981, Joe owned the only running shop in Fort Collins, And so since I was a runner, I used to go up there and hang out, and that's how I met Joe. And we ended up running together and just becoming pretty good friends. And uh, at the time, in the early 80s and 90s, there was no such thing as really paleo diet. It was, you know, the average American diet and, uh, you know, a few other versions of what people thought were healthy, vegetarian and whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So Joe has always been very scientifically oriented, and uh, at the time, in the 80s and 90s, it was thought that the best diet for athletes was a diet that had a a very uh, high-carbohydrate, plant food-based macronutrient content and very little meat, particularly red meat. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, let's all carbohydrate load, get our muscle glycogen stores maximized, uh, before a race and let's go out we're going to run like hell and we're going to win the race because we've got a lot of store glycogen and glucose stores that drive endurance ability well that was a pretty limited uh we now looking back you know 20 or 30 years 25 years later that was pretty limited and pretty um we want to say primitive or just i don't know just a very poor idea of of how our bodies work and so in this, the defi- subsequent years, in the last 10, 15 years or so, we found out that, well, yeah, that, that was important. Let's make sure that we have our muscle glycogen stores maximized before endurance performance. But everything leading up to it, the training, the fitness, the cellular health, 
the iron stores, the zinc stores, all these other factors that really uh, come into play weren't considered. And the bottom line is that the symphony orchestra plays together. It's all instruments uh, played, combined for the good of of the whole. And um, at the time when I introduced Friel to this idea, he I think it was in the early 90s, he was very adamant that, what, you're going to cut down my carbohydrate content, you're going to remove grains and potatoes, and you're going to put meat into my diet? Well, I'm surely my performance will go to hell in a handbasket very, very rapidly. And Joe was very, uh, he has a personality type that he writes everything down, he keeps very good records. So he had records of his performance training, uh, you know, over the last 20 years. And so he did this. I challenged him. I said, hey, Joe, do this for two weeks. doesn't work. Forget it. And so I think his intent really was to go on this thing just to prove me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so he went on it. And after about a week and a half, he started to feel terrible. His training times were reduced. And he was just about ready to call it quits to come back and show me his records, his heart rate and everything else. And then suddenly, at about two and a half weeks, everything started to improve. And it got better and better and better. His training times uh, improved. And then he went to competition. And at national competition, he performed better than he had in like seven or eight years when he was in his late 30s. And then he went through it for a couple of years and tried it out. And what he found out were the upper respiratory illnesses that he normally had that would slow him down during training, eliminated themselves, less injury. He found himself being able, because again, here's a guy that had anal personality recording how far he went, the time he went, everything. He, he found himself uh, improving on all of his interval trainings and all of his workouts. And that's one of the beauties of it is that if you can train at a greater intensity level, uh, then when you go into, you can train at a higher level consistency than when you go into a competition, you're better. So that was kind of Joe's story, and we've related it all on the Paleo Diet for Athletes, and your listeners uh, certainly can, can get that book and, and get yeah. the exact words. So one of the things I liked about your most recent book was that you, you take uh, the paleo perspective and you kind of apply it to some other areas of life, like sun exposure and even what kind of water we're drinking. Do you, do you feel that you're, you're, you yourself have benefited from taking this perspective on things that you do in your daily life? Well, I don't think you should look at me so much. I'm kind of a spokesperson for this movement, and I think that's a problem if you ever get involved in any concept is to look at at one guru that quote-unquote has all the answers. I, I just have a little bit of insight. I got involved early, and we published papers in the scientific literature um, that pointed to the direction of how evolutionary biology was um, important to help us understand uh, current-day health issues and how diet and our environment have a positive and a negative effect on our health. So it's not like <clears throat> the paleo environment was all positive, believe me. There's not a, a single person on this planet that would want to go back to living as a hunter-gatherer because many parts of their life were very, very ugly and difficult and hard and brutal and things that nobody that has lived in the 20th and the 21st century would want to do. Um, but there were many other aspects of their lifestyles that were good, and those are the ones that we should emulate. Hans Selye, the guy, a famous scientist who was involved in outlining the notion of stress, is that we need what is called eustress, not too little and not too much. And we need a certain amount of stress. And in the typical Western diet, we get stress, but we get it from the wrong areas. And we need physical stress, 
And physical stress that we get involves proper amounts of exercise, not too much, proper amounts of being cold, a little bit too cold or a little bit too hot, but not too much, not being hot all the time, not being cold all the time. Yet in the Western world, we live in, you know, air-conditioned homes that are whatever degree. We never get a little bit cold or rarely unless you're an outdoors person. And many of us never get really too hot because we don't exercise. Mm-hmm. So those kind of stressors are good for us. Mm-hmm. A little getting too hot, a little bit too cold, but not too much all the time. And similarly, we need a, a diet that um, that has an optimal or an appropriate amount of trace nutrients that stresses our body not too much and not too little. So it's an artificial situation to give our bodies these incredibly high doses of antioxidant vitamins like, you know, a milligram or 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day, vitamin E, beta carotene, and all these other vitamins and nutrients that we think are helpful. They just knock us on the other side of the the normal distribution. So uh, that's not a healthy thing to do, and that's the environmental template. Mm-hmm. What we should focus upon is not artificial foods, not refined foods, and not foods that are, you know, nutrient loaded with supplements to the gills. Those aren't helpful for us either. We should focus on natural nutrient dense foods, foods like eggs, meat, seafood, fresh fruits and vegetables. And when we eat those foods, then we can get the optimal amount of nutrients, other nutrients that are healthy for us. What would your response be to someone who says that eating meat maybe will cause kidney disease kidney or heart disease or maybe even colon cancer? Well, I would say that they're uninformed and they haven't read the, the recent meta-analyses. So, and um, eating meat actually seems to be protective against kidney dysfunction. And the most recent studies um, are supportive of that notion. Kidney dysfunction seems to occur initially not from eating meat, but from eating refined high glycemic load carbohydrates. So once the cat's out of the bag, once kidney function is shot, then kidney is very poorly adapted to eating high-protein diets. And I think that uh, that's where the misinformation has come in. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit more complex than this, and I've explained it in scientific papers. I don't really, you know, we, we probably don't have the time to go through all the mechanisms. Right. Um, but nevertheless, uh, high-protein diets actually are protective against kidney malfunction, and they seem to work kind of like lifting weights do for your muscles. So when you lift weights, your muscles hypertrophy and get bigger, and they're able, better able to respond to a greater load. And that's the way the kidney seems to work with uh, increased exposure to higher protein diets is it actually hypertrophies and its function then increases so that uh, we don't end up with albumin in the urine. And that's kind of the end point of kidney malfunction. And actually what occurs is that the higher protein diets, albumin doesn't increase in the urine. And when we look at what's called the glomerular filtration rate, Kidney actually, if you take this rate of kidney filtering blood relative to the kidney volume, it actually improves. So it's kind of like your biceps muscles improve with weightlifting. So the index then of of kidney function uh, is, you know, the devil is in the detail in science. And and many of your readers and your listeners, um, I'm certain that they could go into the scientific literature and ultimately figure it out, but you kind of have to have the background. You kind of have to know how the body functions and 
having spent, you know, my lifetime, my career doing this, it, it, it's second nature. You look at it and you, you can help decompose it into its elements. So what, what was the other, the other question was, uh, uh, how about uh, colon cancer? Um, yeah, but, you know, I think that the, the colon cancer issue comes up with what are called epidemiologic studies. Mm-hmm. So epidemiologic studies are population studies in which you look at the incidence of colon cancer in populations, you look at how much meat they're eating, and you draw an inference. So these are only correlational studies. They, they correlate one variable to the other, but correlation clearly cannot show causality. And so we, we can show a pretty good correlation between the number of TVs in a country or a society in cardiovascular disease. Now, TVs by themselves don't directly cause heart disease. Now, they may indirectly cause it by doing other behavior like being sedentary and eating junk food in front of the TV and whatever. But logically and objectively, you can't show causality between uh, a descriptive study and an event. A perfect example is if you go to New York City and you look at a large fire. The larger the fire is, the more fire trucks come to the fire. So there's a perfect correlation between that. But do more fire trucks cause larger fires? No. <laughs> There's only an association. And so that, that's the problem with epidemiologic studies is it's very, you can't show causality. And so what we need to do is to show causality is to feed people a high meat diet for all of their lives and control everything else that they eat and see if indeed a high meat diet causes colon cancer. Mm-hmm. That's clearly impractical. There's no way people are going to ever submit to, you know, <laughs> being put in a cage and, and, and giving a, you know, a diet for the rest of their lives. So we can't do that. So we have to use epidemiology. Epidemiology is flawed because it can't show causality. There's what are called confounding factors. So then what we have to revert to are animal studies. If we feed animals a high meat diet, does it cause colon cancer? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is, well, what are, the, what are the significant confounding factors? And if you feed a, a rat, it's typical rat chow, which is basically white flour, sugar, salt, whatever, and then you throw in meat every other day, then yes, maybe. But if you put a rat on its normal diet in the wild, there's very few wild rats, and you throw in meat, there's not an effect. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is that there's, there's really not good causality evidence. And so what we have to go back on are what are called meta-analyses. And meta-analyses are studies in which we take all the studies that have ever been conducted in the scientific literature, and we combine them. So instead of having 5,000 or 1,000 people in the study, we now have 150,000, 500,000, or a million. And we use specialized statistics to try to analyze the data. And the meta-analyses of red meat and cancer are, they come out both ways. Mm -hmm. So mechanistically, one of the ideas behind red meat and cancer is that red meat contains a compound called heme. It's heme iron. And heme iron, um, at least in rat models, can induce colon cancer. So the question comes up then is in a hunter-gatherer environment, which we've been eating for two and a half million years, we've been eating meat forever. Does it cause colon cancer? Probably not, because under the context of a non-refined food diet without refined sugars, grains, and vegetable oils, and under the umbrella of fresh fruits and vegetables, it seems that uh, the antioxidants and the other compounds, phytochemical compounds in fruits and veggies, seem to nullify 
the effects of continual heme iron upon the GI tract. Okay. You know, uh, you just mentioned there how difficult it is to kind of decipher what's going on in the scientific literature. Have your views changed at all since you started writing about the paleo diet? I think anybody's, science is not a static field. It's mm-hmm. it, Particularly physiology, nutrition, it changes. Anatomy doesn't change a whole lot, and other disciplines within biology are not so dynamic. But nutrition and physiology and biochemistry and, and cellular biology are changing literally daily. And we have so much greater resources to, um, to access as the world's populations get bigger and bigger. Of course, my ideas have changed. And I think, and I'm not blowing my own horn, but I, I think any good scientist should always let the data speak for itself and adjust their views accordingly. So, uh, you know, in Columbus's day, they, they, they really weren't aware that there was a gigantic continent that stood between Europe and, and Asia. And, and Columbus never realized that. But eventually they did. And all cartographers and all explorers afterwards came to the notion that indeed, here's the circumference of the planet, and here's the facts and the data that we need to use. And so on a much grander scale, in physiology and nutrition, uh, the facts change as we discover more and more mechanisms that operate at the molecular and cellular levels. And those mechanisms then ultimately can be incorporated into theories and hypotheses about how diet works to maximize or minimize our health. But the bottom line is there's, there's this enormous uh, organizational template called evolution. And evolution was designed over the millennia and the millions of years by natural selection. So most of the, the new mechanisms and molecules and, and, and theories and hormonal mechanisms we find are guided by evolution through natural selection. And if we take a few steps back and use this organizational template of how we were, when we were, then everything seems to fall into place. Mm-hmm. For instance, omega-3 fatty acids now seem to be the panacea for many areas in health, cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, immune disease, and whatever. And what is it about omega-3 fatty acids compared to the typical Western diet that are so protective? Well, what we're doing is we're simply getting back to the environment in which we're adapted to and restoring those nutrients that bring our phenotype, our outward characteristics, which is where disease occurs, into concordance with our genotype. And so... This is the real beauty of this paleo diet concept is that it's kind of like playing football or soccer and the opposing team has to run uphill and you get to run downhill. We're utilizing a tool, evolution through natural selection in nutrition that has rarely been used. Mm-hmm. And anybody that operates uh, without that tool and tries to interpret appropriate human nutrition without considering human evolution is playing football uphill. Mm-hmm. So not me, not Boyd Eaton, it's everybody that have come to this realization, including Charles Darwin from day one, is that nothing in biology makes sense except under the light of evolution. And nutrition is simply a, an applied biological discipline. Okay. And they, those folks in nutrition 
that have provided us with the dogma on what we should and should not eat, the USDA and American Heart Association and others, don't have evolutionary specialists within their confines um, to give them input into national dietary guidelines. Mm-hmm. And until they do that, they'll be playing football uphill. Mm-hmm. So are there certain books or people or things that inspire you to keep learning and keep researching? Absolutely. It's like I think anybody that has an open mind and continues to read the scientific literature, uh, you'll find that there are people that are just beginning their careers, people that are ending their careers that have enormous insights into uh, our health and well-being. Let me give you, for instance, have you heard of Watson and Crick? Yeah, of course. Of course you have. Watson and Crick were the two scientists that (laughs) decoded uh, DNA, the genetic code. These are the guys that figured it all out. So they put it all together. We now have deciphered, we, we've, we've uncoded the entire human genome. And so Crick is dead now, but James Watson is still alive. And he's got to be in his 80s or maybe even his 90s. And he recently published a paper that absolutely was brilliant. And I just got to read it today. Wow. So James Watson the uncoverer of the genetic code, wrote a paper about cancer. And uh, it, it's absolutely brilliant in his knowledge and his, his knowledge of the literature, even still at this advanced point in his career. And he brought up some very, very good points. And um, what we're finding in the epidemiologic literature and since about the early 90s, late 80s, is that people that take high levels of antioxidant vitamins actually increase the risk for a variety of cancers. This came out with a a couple of famous studies in the 90s in which men who were heavy smokers were given beta carotene. And those that were given beta carotene ended up dying at about a 20% higher rate than those that weren't given anything. And so this was shocking, is that, wait a minute, antioxidant vitamins, beta carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E are not protective? No, they're not. They increase the risk of cancer. Mm -hmm. And so Jim Watson, in this paper that just came out I don't know, a month or two ago, he gives us a brilliant explanation of why, and it's kind of along the lines of what many scientists are thinking, is that antioxidant vitamins prevent our immune system from destroying cancer cells. Hmm. So the mechanisms that destroy cancer cells are what are called reactive oxygen species. So in our mitochondria of all cells, we produce these free radicals or reactive oxidative species, and those are used to destroy defective cells. And when you eliminate these reactive oxidant species by throwing tons of antioxidant vitamins into the system, then you inhibit the ability of the body's natural systems to get rid of cancer cells. So, okay. so this idea then is becoming more and more prevalent. And guess what? It's, it dovetails nicely with the evolutionary or the paleo diet. In my most recent book, The Paleo Answer, I bring this point up in a chapter, and I said that antioxidant vitamins and minerals should not be taken. Vitamin E, selenium, vitamin C, beta carotene, all of these things actually increase your risk. If you want to get antioxidants, get them at a level that we always got them at, at this bell-shaped curve. Get them from fruits and veggies. But mm-hmm. don't 10 or 100 or 1,000 times the RDA through an artificial dose. And every time we try to 
outsmart our biology, we invariably screw it up. Yeah, yeah. So, Lauren, if people are interested in finding out more about how to eat this way, um, where can they go to find out more? Well, you know what, Aaron? Anybody who is more than seven years old knows you can find out on the Internet. (laughs) The problem is, is that there's all kinds of unsubstantiated ideas and uh, non-objective science on the Internet. So you can get it any way you want. You can find out what you believe in. If you think that paleo is eating dairy products, I'm sure you can find a website that shows you that that's helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that if you think you want to add salt, sea salt to your diet, you can probably find a website and a group of people that believe that. But that's the problem with the Internet is that much of it is non-objectively driven, which isn't bad. It allows for freedom of expression and new ideas, but we need to... We need to have good hypotheses, and we need to have these hypotheses that are driven experimentally. And so until that happens, then these ideas that dairy products are okay if you're on paleo or salt is okay or, you know, these junk foods made out of almond flours are okay, until we have experimental evidence or good hypothetical science uh, behind it, then it's untenable. It's, it's not good science, and it's just somebody hanging out in the alley trying to say, here's why I believe this is in my perspective. So as I mentioned from the very beginning, is that this thing needs to be driven by the data and by the science, mm-hmm. and that's how we move it forward. Yeah, I really like that perspective. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for giving your time today to our listeners. Um, I think it was a great conversation and it was a pleasure talking with you. I look forward to keeping up with you on your blog and I hope to talk to you soon. Hey, Aaron, thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure and, and thanks so much for supporting the Paleo Diet and congratulations to you for your improvements in health and uh, particularly with IBS and, and GI tract problems. And I encourage you to spread the word because that's really what the web is all about is that it's like you talking to your neighbor. And uh, the more of us talk to one another, uh, I think the more rapidly we can move forward. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.